Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Lance Ugla, the founder and CEO of Beyond Net Zero which is growth equity firm General Atlantic's climate fund focused on supporting and scaling companies that are developing innovative climate solutions. Before joining General Atlantic, Lance was the chairman and CEO of IHS Market, a world leader in critical information, analytics, and solutions for the world's major industries and economic markets. IHS Market was acquired by S&P Global in a $44 billion deal earlier this year. Lance began his career in sales and trading at CIBC World Markets and then moved on to TD Securities, where he was the head of Europe and Asia. He founded Market in 2003 and ran it, and later the combined IHS Market for almost 20 years. Lance earned his bachelor's degree from Simon Fraser University and a master's degree from the London School of Economics. Among his many awards and accolades, he earned a Lifetime Achievement Award from Risk Magazine and was named EY's UK Entrepreneur of the Year, both in 2012. Lance, welcome. Great to have you on the show. I appreciate your time. It's good to be here. Yeah, so let's start with your current role. It's relatively recent. Tell our audience a little bit about what you're doing with Beyond Net Zero. So we're one year into Beyond Net Zero, and it is General Atlantic's climate venture. And we set up Beyond Net Zero together to allow for a more focused approach in growth climate investing. And I say growth because it's not venture, it's not infrastructure, and it's really looking for those companies that have a real strong climate focus, which for us is defined as decarbonization. I mean, as you say, you've only been doing this for a year. You founded Market, you merged it with IHS, you sold it to S&P. You could have just ridden off into the sunset. So, you know, what sort of prompted you to dive in with Lord John Brown in founding this venture? Well, so both John and the CEO of General Atlantic, Bill Ford, were on my board. So I've got an excellent relationship with both of them going back a, a number of years. And so it was quite natural for us to have a discussion about what's next. And John and I had been thinking about climate, even within the context of the assets we had in IHS market. And so when we came up with a plan to raise a fund and go out and invest specifically in companies that, you know, help with environmental change, Bill was at the table. And, you know, together, the three of us talked about, you know, where would be best to set this up. And doing it on General Atlantic's platform is a real win-win. So before my days in financial services, when I was at McKinsey, one of my big clients was BP when John Brown was running BP. And, you know, he was thinking about this very actively, even this is 20 years ago. And 
you know, some of the projects that I enjoyed most were the ones where we were really trying to help them get ahead on the environmental front. So, you know, he's stayed true to this, you know, all through his time there and in his time since. Yeah. No, John's quite a visionary because not many people know that he had such a climate focus as oil and gas, you know, executive back in the day. But you're right. He had a focus on, you know, renewable energy and defining a path of change for BP that was really, you know, even before its time. Working together with him as the chair of, you know, Beyond Net Zero, it's quite excellent, really, because he's got the engineering background. He understands energy transition and what the big energy companies can do and how they can participate. And then he's uniquely curious and interested in new technologies and new ventures. So it really is a great partnership. Yeah, that's great to hear. So there are some particular themes that you're focused on, right, in terms of your investment strategy? Yes. Well, what's interesting is we sat down and we said, what are the four big themes that we could invest in? And I have to tell you, four big themes turn into 50 sub-themes. And so we've got got a lot of work within our team going on around the research and development and and learnings needed, you know, identify great companies and then invest in them. But the four themes are emissions management, resource conservation. That's really the circular economy. Decarbonization, which is, you know, reduction, you know, services or technology or, you know, products that, you know, remove carbon. And energy efficiencies, which of course can be building management systems, house management systems, you know, things that will generate efficiencies in terms of total carbon footprint. So those are the four themes. And as I said, many sub themes, you know, the team is regularly working with an independent consultancy called Systemic, as well as some others, McKinsey and others, where we're digging deep, what we call the deep dives into each of the subsectors. So home building systems or building systems for commercial buildings, you know, there's many. And so we would look for those companies with exceptional growth, an amazing entrepreneur, somebody that you can back and help, you know, execute their business against, you know, what we expect to be a really big TAM. Yeah. How much have you invested so far? And what are the things that you're particularly excited about? You know, we're just coming up to the, you know, the first year close of the fund. We've made five investments. The average investment size for us is is circa you know 150 to 200 million. Okay. So we'll end end the year you know probably just shy of a billion invested out of three and a half billion to invest. And you know we've invested in companies that do solar as a service in Africa, at Sun King. We've invested in a supply chain technology company in the U.S. called O9 Solutions a sustainability ratings company in Europe called Ecovadas, and the remaining two, a vertical farm called 80 Acres, which is now building out a second and third farm. Finally, a waste management solutions company called Roadrunner. And so we've invested in Europe, one in Africa, and three in the U.S. Really, we're all about identifying, you know, the great entrepreneur to back in a company that's growing, you know, strong double digits, with a really good site on its gross margins and ultimately profitability. Yeah. You've got your fund in place, as you mentioned. What's ahead for you? What's ahead for the team? You know, if you think about, you know, it's quite different than running a company. Here I am asking entrepreneurs run their companies. And really that's where I add value in the, the equation is, you know, helping with sales strategy, technology choices, leveraging their information or data sets, 
you know, building out a global infrastructure, best cost locations, you know, a lot of things going public, setting up a board, lots of things that I either did really well or I did really poorly. And so I've learned from it. You know, that's really where I help the investing team is working with the entrepreneurs. You know, as a team, you know, we really take a scientific approach to those four themes. We've taken them into sub themes. We then work with, you know, strategic partners, whether the banks, consulting firms. We, you know, of course, work with all the VC funds and look for those companies that are, you know, at the appropriate stage in their growth stage for growth capital, for that next stage of capital to get them from, you know, A to B. And, you know, these are companies that are, you know, they don't have concept risk. They're not trying to figure out products still. They have strong revenue, strong revenue growth and gross margin. And two out of our five companies actually are already profitable. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we really need that sight and, you know, vision for the company in the TAM that it operates. So right now, you know, we've databased over a thousand companies, you know, over the last year. So it's a lot. We have a team of 17 investment professionals. We, of course, leverage. We're part of GA. We're the GA climate strategy. So we have the whole sourcing and business acceleration teams of GA working with us. And so out of that thousand companies, I'd say there's about 75 companies that we've identified that kind of fit our guardrails. And from that, over the next, you know, three years, we really need to, you know, make another, you know, four to six investments a year, you know, around that same size. And those 75 companies, just to give you an idea, on average, you know, have growth rates over 50%. You know, and a third of them have revenues more than 100 million. They all have gross margin. And about a third of them are already profitable. So it gives you an idea of the types of companies. These aren't startups. These are companies that are proven their early stages of growth with great entrepreneurs, great teams, and will take a minority stake and then help them be even better. So what's the timing on the fund itself? Yeah. So, you know, uh, typically you'd you'd expect to invest the fund over about a four-year period. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, the sale of those companies can happen, you know, over the following four years or the following five years. You know, I I think generally accepted, you know, that a PE fund is going to have a life of, you know, at least 10 years, you know, by the time everything's monetized. We expect, you know, like, we underwrite to a private equity framework. So we don't expect that because it's climate, it should have a lower return. Okay. Let's let's go back a bit, go back to your market days. So you'd been at CIBC and TD. How did the founding of market come about? And you know, what problem for the industry were you were you focused on solving at that point? Well, it was interesting because I grew up in the fixed income markets trading mortgage-backed securities that, you know, at uh what was Wood Gundy and became CIBC World Markets. I moved from there to Toronto Dominion Bank and I was trading credit in the early 90s was the onset of the credit derivative markets, which this new, right. you know, funky derivative allowing you to, you know, take decent positions in credit as well as hedging, you know, broader positions with the marketplace. It also allowed a bank to be able to go to, you know, a customer and underwrite a big ticket one-on-one with their customer and then lay it off globally to other people that might want that risk. Mm-hmm. And so the credit derivative, you know, had an interesting early start in terms of risk management. But of course, like many derivatives used poorly 
they can result in, you know, a lot of leverage and incremental challenges. And we saw that around the collapse of Enron. And it was really that period around Enron's collapse that there was this real push. There was a regulation that came out. It was called ETIF 02, so 2002. And it was a regulation requiring mark to market. You know, derivatives at that point, you know, you do a derivative trade as, you know, as a fund and you'd probably let your counterparty market for you. And we, we started to shift to independent marks. Mm. And I saw this window of opportunity around the derivative markets to create a bit more transparency and independence in the market. And I felt the only way to do that would be to you know speak to five or 10 banks and hope that they'd be willing to share data to create for the sole purpose of uh, mark-to-market. And that was the start of it. That was the idea. And I was in the middle of those markets trading a big credit portfolio and a lot of credit derivatives. And because I was you know, a Canadian bank, I was really trading with the street and they viewed me as a customer. Mm-hmm. It's, I wasn't a market maker per se. Right. And so therefore I was receiving marks from my counterparts. And I built a system where I needed at least three marks to gain the right treatment of capital for that portfolio. And I could see from what I was doing as a organized counterparty in the marketplace that, you know, this was needed by many more. Anybody, in fact, a corporate, a bank, a fund manager, a hedge fund, you know, we really needed some transparency like we had in the FX or the equity or, you know, big bond markets. We needed it in the pure credit markets. And that was the start of of market. It was to become the benchmark for credit pricing. And, you know, there was a few people participating in the marketplace, but within a year or two, you know, we really, you know, fortunately we were able to convince participants that, you know, we had the better mousetrap. And that was the first story. And still today, that's a very important product within the S&P Global product suite. So you had a little bit of a unique situation in terms of that consortium of banks that were involved, which I'm sure gave you a, you know, a bit of a boost out of the gate. But you know, look, being an entrepreneur is always hard. What were the first few years like and what were your big challenges? Yeah, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, oh god, you had 13 banks on your board. And, you know, I always looked at it as, you know, they were partners in building the business and they were trusting me, their largest, you know, block of shareholding, you know, myself and the employees, they were trusting us to do a great job. So, you know, I always felt that they were great partners and I never, you know, I know that, you know, hey, JP Morgan's much bigger than, you know, Barclays and Barclays might be bigger than TD. But the fact is, is if they're trading you know, Nestle's and they have a position, they generally know the mark to market of that position. So therefore, allowing banks across the globe to share data to create an independent price, they really did trust that I would deal with that in a way that, you know, respected their positions in the marketplace, which meant that it was for mark to market and we produced it once a day. And it allowed risk managers, product controllers, et cetera, to really, you know, have an insight. So the banks I felt were great partners. The other thing that people hated was, you know, people, and even today, you know, people can complain about regulation. I hear it a lot in the climate space, right? You know, you hear both the positives and negatives of regulation. 
But to me, if you're setting up an information-based business, regulation is usually a tailwind to your business. Mm. You know, it's not the headwind. You're helping participants solve those regulatory challenges. And so you should be able to turn what a lot, you know, might wake up every morning and say is, you know, an anchor to their strategy. I always viewed it as, you know, the sales to the strategy. And that uh, regulation was something that I should embrace and help customers of market and IHS markets solve those regulatory problems. And we did that in automotive and energy and in uh, financial markets over and over again. When you think back to those early years, what did you learn about leading a company that you've taken with you since then? I think the number one biggest thing, which maybe if you talk to my kids, they go, dad, you've changed so much. I think the biggest place, and and to me, I call it learning. uh, I do think that you're never finish learning. I hate the thought that I'm going to stop learning one day. And I think what I learned the most between 1986, when I started in a trading room on a trading floor to today, is that this feeling of inclusivity and belonging in a firm, it's really, really important. Mm. And it's not funny. It's not a place to joke. It's something I think if you're leading a small group, a big group, a firm, a team, the fact is, is people want to show up and feel like they belong no matter who they are. And so building an inclusive culture is something that it really shifted throughout my career. And it actually, to me, is the single you know, biggest competitive edge I can give any entrepreneur or somebody starting out that hasn't recognized that. Now, our youth is recognizing it a lot more than we did. Yes. Or I did. But that leaves a big swath in the middle that's yeah. still learning. And my view is, is the more you accelerate it, the better atmosphere you create. And when you have a happy, inclusive atmosphere, you build better products, you have better customer relationships, you get to hire the best people. It plays out over and over and over again. It's probably the thing that I'm most proud of. Yeah. Well, it's certainly something to, to be very proud of. What were some of the specific things that you did to really push this, to accelerate it within market? Well, the first thing you have to do is, well, you want to be diversified and you want to look and feel like, you know, the countries and your offices in various locations around the world, you want them to look and feel like the communities that, you know, they operate in. And that's sometimes hard because, you know, a lot of times you're a company, you grew up in New York, you grew up in London, and, you know, it's very white, Anglo-Saxon, male-dominated. And therefore, you know, if your hiring practices are only local and you don't look to be diversify your teams, you end up having a real homogenous uh, set of people working every day. And so in order to change that, you have to... First, start off with your board. So I, I looked at my board and there was a 30% club at the time. Right. And I remember my daughter saying to me, what is 30% club? And I said, well, we've just made the 30% club. And she goes, that's so ridiculous, 30%. You know, women make up half the world. Right. You know, is it only Scandinavia that can have a 50% club? And that day forward, I told my board, we're going to be a 50-50 board. Mm. And we were between one board member shy at the time of the sale to be 50-50. And so that's completely controllable because 
boards are turning over, right? They, you know, board members turn over, they leave for certain reasons, they retire, they get older, you have limits. And so when you need to replace a board member, you have a choice. And so to me, I look, where do I have choice? I definitely had choice of the board. The other place you have choice is when you're hiring, right? So if I take a firm like IHS Market, you know, 17,000 people, just say 10% attrition and right. 10% growth. Well, you got to hire 3,400 people, right? Right. Do you hire 3,000 men and 400 women? Do you hire, you know, 3,000 white individuals and 400 black individuals? Mm-hmm. If that's your hiring practices, then you're never going to change. So what that means to me is, is that we need to diversify. When you're hiring, you have to insist that it's diversified. So yep. you can't hire, you know, a lot of people say, well, I only saw two men. That's all the applicants that were qualified. Right. And I, that you have to just say that's not yes. possible. We have to have diversified hiring. And the other thing we said is our intern programs and our associate programs had to be 50-50. And they had to be representative of the communities we worked in. Because, you know, if you're operating Japan, it's going to be, you know, uh, very Japan-centric and Japanese-centric. If you're operating in India, it's going to be very India-centric. If you're operating in the U.S. or U.K., it's much more of a melting pot of many, many different cultures and backgrounds. And then always, you know, hiring you know, to a high bar to be, you know, on our intern and associate programs to be equal men and women. You know, setting rules like that or guardrails is really important. It allows you to, you know, fix the top and the bottom. So then you, the hard question is, what do you do in the middle with, you know, people's career paths? And, you know, I I think there you have to be open-minded that if you can have a diversified leadership team in a firm, it actually is going to produce better results. If you don't believe that, then we really can't have a discussion about it. But if you believe diversity leads to better decision-making, it's more attractive to your customers, you can relate to customers in different ways, it's better for leadership in your firm. You know, if I'm a young Black man in a firm, I want to look up and see that I've got places to go in this firm. I don't look up and, you know, see a bunch of people that don't look or feel like me. If I'm a woman, it's the same thing. If I'm, you know, part of the LBGTQ, you know, diversification, I want to look up and feel that in this firm, I can be who I am and I have a place to go and I've got a career path. So I became, you know, very, you need to measure and you have to measure regularly so that your leaders can see how they're doing in terms of diversification. And I don't say, you know, you just have to hire somebody for the sake of a number, but you have to work really hard to identify and find great people. And that just takes a bit more time. It costs a bit more, but in the end, you have a better company. Yeah. What were the other things that were important to you in terms of the kind of culture that you were trying to create and market? Well, one of the things I was really proud of, and actually I heard the other day, S&P Global announced something similar, is at IHS Market, we created this measurement called Vitality. And, you know, as being part of an asset manager, you want to invest in companies that are growing, number one. Right. Organic growth is better than acquired growth. Mm -hmm. And you love it when a company's refreshing and building new products. So we created this concept of vitality, which was what percent of your revenue 
came from products that were developed at home, in-house, over the past three years. And we kept those products in the vitality measure mm-hmm. as long as their revenue growth stayed above the growth rate of the firm. So if we're growing at 8% and you know you had a product that was three years old that was still 12% growth, it could still be part of your vitality. You created it, it's growing, and it's, it's accretive to our growth. Mm-hmm. And when you started measuring that and making it part of people's performance and compensation, yeah, you started to see the investment. And you stopped seeing wasted investment too, because you know, ultimately, you know, you can create and innovate a lot of different ways. But when it's measured again and monitored and it's part of your performance measurement, it becomes really important. And we started to share it with the board. And just as we told the company, we were starting to talk to it with shareholders. You know, I can't take credit that I'm the first company ever to measure vitality because I have seen others that, you know, had successfully, you know, measured innovation and, you know, that the health measure of organic growth. I actually think it's a really, really important score because it creates a culture of innovation in your firm and an investment, you know, taking some portion of your EBITDA and putting it back into, you know, new product development. I think that's really, really important. And so that was important. I'd say the other thing that I think about people and, you know, how we led and managed the firm, I think about vitality. Mm-hmm. I guess the third thing I'd say that made a real difference was developing a location strategy to drive, you know, profitability. I say location strategy because if I think about the world, my view is, is there's great people, you know, you can have a great CTO in Toronto, you can have a great CTO in Denver, you can have a great CTO in Mexico City and Frankfurt and Paris. The fact is, is if somebody's a great CTO, they exist in many places in in the world. And you know, some places in the world have, you know, a lower cost structure, lower cost of benefits, lower cost of real estate. And so when you really look at building a firm where you start to scale, and this is probably helpful for your listeners, is when you really start to scale, it might be too late to have a location strategy. Because once you hire your whole team in Denver or you hire your whole team in London or New York or Paris, you're in a cost structure right. for your leadership. If you decide your leadership can be globally placed and you can manage a global leadership, well, then what you want to do is build out your teams around that leadership. And my view was, is that, you know, you gain benefits, you know, Toronto versus New York. The Canadian dollar generally is 25% less than the US dollar. The benefits are about, you know, 20,000 or 25,000 a year less for healthcare and other benefits. The real estate in Canadian dollars is less. The bonus culture is less. And all of a sudden, you know, it's 100,000 ahead. Mm-hmm. That's a number I used religiously. Yeah. Is that if I used locations around the world for, you know, our technology, our operations, our testing, some of our product development, some of our services. I could generate about 100,000 US per head savings. So if you think of a a company that has 20,000 people and you put 10,000 people in a better cost location, you're driving a billion of EBITDA on location strategy. I learned that when we had 200 people. 
Mm. And I started to build out locations. I ended up with, you know, several hundred people in Malaysia, several hundred people in Poland, several hundred people, well, thousand people in India, several hundred people in South America. So when you started, you're building that out, Canada, other places in the U.S. that had a nice advantage to New York, we really, really drove incremental investment dollars. So Mm. I could give margin to shareholders, but I also could reinvest at a higher level. And that drove the vitality. So I'd say location strategy, people strategy, the vitality of your products, location, very important. And I'd say the final one I'd add to that is, you know, a closeness to customers. Mm. And I think that's in any business. There's nothing nicer than somebody calling you up, not trying to sell you something, but to actually ask you, how are you doing with the product? Is there any problems? What are the two or three things that you know, you'd really like to see different in the product. And you take that feedback in regularly from your sales and your support and your leadership team, you know, having a culture to visit customers and, you know, be close to them. And and those were the kind of tenants of what I called the IHS market strategy. It was people, uh, product, which is the vitality, customers, which is the closeness to the customers, efficiency, which was driving, you know, overall efficiencies and measurement. The final piece, sorry, was technology. Be an active user of technology to gain a competitive advantage. That doesn't mean build it, right? Use it. Know what's available to you. Like, you know, technology's influenced everything I've done since 86. Yeah. In terms of processing, you know, speed of the chips ability to distribute, the ability to back up, to sort, to combine qualitative and quantitative data now. You know, Mm. it never changed, you know, from cell phones to emails to object-oriented programming to the web to distributed data, you know, architectures, open source. You know, next will be quantum computing, I'm sure. So technology's always been an active influencer. And so I think all leaders need to Make sure that they're a user of the cutting edge. You know, don't try to do it yourself. You don't need to create Amazon Web Services. You've got Azure, you've got AWS, you've got Google Cloud, you've got IBM, but you better use them and use them well. You talked a little bit about just the the way you interacted with your leaders. What did you look for, you know, when you were promoting somebody into a leadership role or hiring somebody in from the outside? What were the attributes, you know, that were most important to you? Yeah. So for me, leadership, you know, is more than just your direct reports. It's your direct reports and their direct reports, you know, in an organization that has, you know, five to seven, you know, you know, I hate organizations with 10 layers of management and, you know, it's a good practice sometimes to actually take the CEO and then count, count down through all your divisions and go, my God, this leader's got nine levels of reports. At that point I go, that's somebody that's disconnected to their organization. Yep. And they've got way too much hierarchy. And I think in this world of technology and the hybrid workforce, et cetera, we can manage a broader group of people. You know, 10, 12 people reporting, 15 isn't, for some people, isn't that difficult. So I think this seven to 10 optimal leadership structure that went out the door with COVID. So, you know, for me, the leaders, I really want them to be measurable, uh, not just on commercial activities. I want at least 25% of their measurement to come from 
activities that are the health checks of the firm. You know, so it's the hiring practices, it's recruitment, it's training and development, it's customer connectivity. So, you know, if you're a CTO and you're on my leadership team, I want to know how many universities did you recruit from this year? Hmm. I assume every executive should be at least at their university and maybe, you know, one other. Because if we bring our leaders to the recruitment, we really tracked an even, you know, better opportunity set. The other thing I want to make sure is that once we get the interns in place, that we don't just give them to other interns and low-level managers for, you know, that regular rotation. I want leaders. So I would measure, you know, the interaction with our educational teams. How many of the educational courses that we ran internal in the firm, you know, are you teaching? Mm -hmm. Right? And these are all soft things. Are you up to speed? Like, I never, ever wanted to ask people if they'd done all the compliance. You know, every year we've got to do all these compliance trainings. Right. I didn't want to be the leader that was asking that. But at the end of the year, I had a partnership program that, you know, top 100 people. And those numbers were reported. So if there was five trainings in the year and you'd done three, you got three-fifths of that score. If you've done five, you got the score. And my view was, is everything I, I was measuring was easy. You know, did you recruit? Did you do some training and development? Have you improved your diversity uh, scores? What does your 360s rating look like, you know, from your peers and people that work for you? Some people are great up, some down, some all around. And I did those discussions myself for my reports and their reports for what we called partnership. Are you a great partner of the firm? You know, when you went to visit Singapore, did you just go out with the guys that reported to you or girls that reported to you? Because you're a leader of the firm, did you meet broader people? It was self-reported, but the fact is, if it, if it didn't happen, I always trusted the team to report what was done. Yeah. And so it changed the culture of the firm. I think that those are things that I want to see in leaders, all the soft things, because I assume on the product, you know, mm -hmm. leadership side, I'm building products or leading sales teams, the mechanics of that, they're all, you know, they're hired to be good at it. They're pretty good at it. When it comes to being real leaders, there's much more to it. How did you think about spending your own time? I mean, I'm sure you got pulled in a lot of different directions every day. You know, was there sort of a conscious allocation of how you wanted to balance your time across different types of activities? Yeah, I think as a CEO, you've got a, you know, you got shareholders, they're important. And in IHS market, the shareholders were our customers as well. So it was very important. It's probably, you know, 10, 15% of your time. You've got customers, you know, so again, 10, 15% of your time. I wanted to be engaged deeply in our tech agenda. So that's another, you know, 10, 15% of your time. You've got people, you know, the whole people issues across the firm, you know, 15, 20% of your time. And then the whole leadership around product and new product development, et cetera. That's probably another 20% of your time. So however you make it up, you know, five, six areas where you got to spend 15, 20% of your time, that's what I did. And I was very organized on, you know, time allocations throughout the year. Did you, you know, were there occasions where you got pulled radically off of that, where you had to kind of pull yourself back into your, your target allocation? Yeah, we actually measured some of these things quite well. So, you know, not Jeff Bezos reporting down to the, the infinitesimal 
you know, performance metric, but we were very willing to be transparent on what everybody was doing. So I wasn't asking people to do things I didn't do. So I said 150 customer connections a quarter, whether it was a phone call or in person. Well, you, if you're out on the road and I'm in the Middle East, I might be seeing 40 or 50 customers on that trip. You know, you're very concentrated, but when you come back, you got to kind of shed that. Right. Now you're ahead on customers, but I've got a quarterly reporting. I need to spend some time with our biggest shareholders. Mm. Then we've got, you know, we're trying to hit, you know, seven, eight percent organic growth and we're slipping a bit. I want to spend time with, you know, customers for new growth or for, you know, the new product development to ensure that, you know, future quarters will be stronger or products are released on time or deals are closed, you know, that, you know, might be getting dragged. So you have to juggle your time. You know, again, my view to anybody working in business is if you really are willing to dedicate 50, maximum 60 hours a week to your job. Mm. And if you think 50, it's 10 hours of work every day, not weekends. And if it's 60, it's 12. So you probably need a half day on the weekend unless you want to work 12 hours every day. And so my view is these people that say, oh, I work 60 to 80 hours, whatever. I think that this is craziness because you're going to fall apart at that type of pace. Some people can do it, but yeah. I actually think the organized and women are better at, than men at this. I learned a lot in terms of women on my team that were juggling lots of things in life. They can put a solid 50 hours in and get everything done well. Yeah. And I started to model myself around that 50 hours, committed 50 hours. That's not like the arrive at work at eight, go sit down, have a coffee, a couple chats, bowl of cereal. Now it's nine, right? right? Then there's two hours for lunch. And so your productive time is, you know, if you go home at eight to six, you're 10 hours and, you know, you kind of had three hours as they say in Europe, faffing around, <laughs> you know, you got seven hours of real work done. So yeah. I, I kind of figured out that I needed to be productive and well-organized. So conscious of time, you know, you talked about earlier, you know, learning, that you never want to stop learning? What are the things that you're focused on learning right now? Where are you focused on developing yourself? Yeah, well, really right now, it's um, you know really understanding the investment needed to support a one and a half degrees world. Yeah. You know, getting the world to net zero. These are very complex calculations yes. that we're yeah. relying on to slow global warming and in fact, stop it. And so it's a whole new world, understanding the math and science behind climate change, but also understanding the tools that are available. So we can talk carbon capture. You know, I'd love to think that we could put carbon capture all over the world and take the carbon out of the atmosphere and sequester it and put it back in the ground. And guess what? That technology is being developed. It's well on its way in its development path, but it's not ready at scale yet. It hasn't completely figured itself out yet. The use of hydrogen for power storage and distribution, very important, you know, not fully solved yet. The use of solar, wind, EVs, guess what? We're making that happen at scale now, but it's a small percentage. It needs to be much more, but we've got the technology and we know the path. Then you got the big stuff, you know, cement, construction, transportation. These are big categories, agriculture and land use. And each of those has a real great set of opportunities that we can get excited about. 
but they need investment from public sources, private sources. You know, we need the world to, you know, maintain its focus and get on with solving this problem. And when we're in an era of war and energy supply challenges, coming out of COVID, X, you know, trying to get the world growing at the right pace, wow, we've got, you know, a compound fracture. It needs work and focus. I'm spending my time learning about how I can incrementally help that. Beyond net zero is a drop in the investment bucket in terms of what's needed for decarbonization. But it incrementally is really, really important. And the people that are investing their capital with us want to make sure that we're independently measuring that reduction and that what we're doing is going to the right place and being measured properly. And that's a learning curve and I'm on it and I love it. It's new. It's exciting. It's complex. Not that I'm leading companies myself now, but I've got five great entrepreneurs. We'll have many more. I hope that I can help each of them be, you know, even better than they already are. Yeah. That's a lofty goal to be helping entrepreneurs in general. And it's an even loftier goal to be focused on climate change. So So much more we could have covered, but this has been great. I appreciate the time. Give our audience a little bit of a sense of, you know, the on the ground work that's going on in the climate space. So, and just a a bit about your own entrepreneurial journey and all the years at market along the way. So thanks Lance for doing this. Thank you for interviewing me and we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye. I'd like to thank Lance for joining me today to discuss his current work on investing in climate solutions, his early days as an entrepreneur, and a successful journey as a CEO. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.